Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Tucker Carlson is in Moscow, hanging out with Vladimir Putin. We have such a great show for you today. Daniela Balueras, the CEO of the New Leadership Project, joins us to talk about how they mobilize business leaders to protect democracy. Then we'll talk to the Washington Post's Areles Hernandez for a boots-on-the-ground report from the Texas-Mexico border. But first, we have the host of the enemies list, the Lincoln Project's own Rick Wilson, who, I would like to add, will be joining me along with a few other friends, get ready, at City Winery on March 6th for a general election kickoff live show. You can buy tickets now at City Winery's website and you won't want to miss it. And here is Rick Wilson. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rick Wilson. It's a Monday. What the fuck, man? Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. (laughs) 10,000 days from the general election. Right? (laughs) 10,000 years from the general election. It's rent, but for political hell. (laughs) I think the biggest things out of last week were the fact that there is a number that gags Donald Trump. And I'm happy right. for that number. I'm, I love that that number it's exists. It's $83 million. $83 million. That's the number where Donald Trump stops defaming you. That's the number where even Donald Trump shuts his fucking mouth. Which is kind of impressive because for Rudy Giuliani, there was no number. The It turned out the number did not exist. He just kept defaming. Well, it turned out that Rudy Giuliani is going to be eating uh, out of dumpsters at this rate because he didn't even try to make a deal. He didn't even try to conform his behavior. And now he's in bankruptcy proceedings, right? He's in bankruptcy. Apparently, he has about 2500 bucks in the bank. According to the filing in my Giuliani alumni network, it is bad, bad, and also awful. What are they saying? He's trying to hit anybody he can find up for money. He's desperate. I mean, I feel like when you owe million dollar judgments like that and not one million, but multiple million dollar judgments, that's like more than a loan. How do you wake up in the morning and go, hey, I'm going to call a friend of mine and ask for five or seven million dollars? The person I talked to said Rudy was like, 
oh, yeah, I need 20 grand. I presume in cash. You know? it's, just, Jesus. it's so bad. It, you know what? He bought the ticket. He's taking the ride. By the way, the other bankrupt enterprise, just before you start, is the RNC is flat busted out. Okay, so that's where I was going with this was money trouble. The RNC now, they're like anemic fundraising. The problem is, from what I heard from a straight reporter, was that wealthy people are giving to Nikki Haley. Small dollar donors are giving to Donald Trump. No one is giving to the RNC. Look, the, the RNC a couple years ago noticed something. If their email fundraising appeals included the name Donald Trump, they got money. If they did not include the name Donald Trump, they got no money. The problem for them is that Trump is pounding away on these small dollar donors, 20 emails a day, I must have your immediate donation or the deep state wins, you know, whatever the crap is. The real reason he needs that money is to pay his lawyers. Yeah, he is not putting this into campaigning. This is going into legal fees. Now, the reason that they are being so, shall we say, blunt with every one of the major donor types is they need a lot of money. They need, I believe the technical term is a metric fuckton of money. <laughs> I've heard of the metric fuckton. Yes. Uh, it's a different than the imperial fuckton. It's a totally different thing. Those are freedom units. But long story short, you've got a campaign that is not going to be able to go out there and go head to head with Joe Biden financially on TV. Now, look, that matters less than it used to matter. I think it matters, though. You need money to win the presidency. Yeah, we like money in campaigns. <laughs> you got you got a no bucks, no buck Rogers, as they say. But the fundamental underpinning of this is that nothing Trump is doing right now is actually going into campaigning. He presumes that he will outgun Biden on earned media. Which happened in 2016, but not in 2020. That is correct. Because now Donald Trump is a known quantity. And it's much harder now, even for the gentry Republicans to say, oh, well, you know, I was in a private meeting with Susie Wiles and she told me Trump's just bullshitting. And then Trump goes out and says, I'm not bullshitting. I want to put you fuckers in camps, you know, or whatever it is. Right. So these major donors are going to finish with Nikki and they're going to say for about a week, I can't do anything. And then they're going to all write a check. It's what they do. Because he's also saying, I will target you if you don't. <laughs> right, right, right. I think that we should not wait for these people to have a crisis of conscience because it's not coming. Oh, no. Well, there was a fire sale on, on conscience a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, they're not exactly waking up in the morning and going, my God, what are the implications of me being a complete fucking amoral shitbag. <laughs> they don't think about that every, any day ever. Yeah, exactly. So let me ask you, here we are, we're in this kind of weird period. Nikki Haley, I mean, she's going to be out there. People are giving her money. She's going to get shellacked in South Carolina, though. Explain to us why. Well, look, South Carolina makes Iowa look like a state full of libtard, cuck, progressive, communist, soro shills. <laughs> South Carolina is the home of the dirtiest, lowest. And I want you to remember who's saying this to you right now. It's me. The dirtiest, lowest, nastiest, scummiest, most fucking vicious, mean-spirited, amoral, bottom-feeding, scum-sucking, cat-killing, scumbag really politics feel. in the country. And I'm from Florida. <laughs> Which taught them how to do it. Right. It's like, you know, Darth Vader watching the guy kill all the kids in Star Wars. Like, oh, easy. Whoa, back there, pal. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just so crazily over the top. So Nikki's going to go there. They're doing the birther bullshit on her already. They're going to run a brutal campaign. They're going to say she's an adulteress and a furriner and all this other crazy bullshit. And you know what's going to happen? Trump's going to win by 30 points or 20 points or whatever. Would I love for her to stay in through Super Tuesday at least? Sure, great. She could live off the land. She could do it for a few weeks. But I mean, at the end of the day, my brain space now is devoted to how do you beat Donald Trump? Not how can we help Nikki Haley scooch past the political graveyard? And, you know, I've written about this and I think you've written about this, too, which is this fantasy that Donald Trump somehow goes, 
okay, I'm not the nominee. That's fine. I'll just go away. <laughs> it's insane. This man is running to stay out of jail, right? Yes. He's not running yes. to be the nominee. He's running for his life, his livelihood, his family business. There are two men in the world who know that if Trump doesn't win, their lives are absolutely fucked. One is Donald Trump. The other is Vladimir Putin. If Trump wins, Putin lives. If Trump doesn't, Putin dies. Literally, he is going to die. I don't think he's going to die. That, I think, is hyperbolic. Oh, no, they'll kill him. Yeah, no, 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 no. He, he's, mm, no. He's fine now. He's not that fine. Trump needs to win to stay the fuck out of jail. And none of this, none of this works if Trump loses. All the BS falls apart. All the fundraising falls apart. All the ability to, to get six, seven-figure donations from... Right, nobody's paying for his lawyers if he's not the nominee. And what you're going to see, I suspect, when he is the nominee is there'll be a process of rapid maturation of the legal side, and they will treat it much more seriously. They will not let Trump have another Alina Haba on the stage, because that worked out really well, obviously. Yeah, she really, I mean, you know, it was such an interesting thing. You know, he found this lawyer who looked like a young Melania, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Single white female looking Melania. Right. Turns out that person is not a great lawyer. And you put her against one of the best litigators in this country, a woman yeah, who has know. argued the defense of marriage, DOMA, in front of the Supreme Court. And that really good lawyer eats her for fucking lunch. Robbie, it was the equivalent of watching like a monster go out and tear the head off of somebody and kick it around like a soccer ball and drink from the spurting blood fountain of the neck because this was just <laughs> Tell brutality. us what you really think. <laughs> I know you're like... Oh, damn it. Grandpa Rick's telling <laughs> terrible stories again. The kids You're aren't not sleeping. not grandpa yet. <laughs> not yet. But it's true. I mean, that's a great point. You know, we are, here we are, Alina Haba. By the way, supposedly, you know, when we had Robbie on the podcast, she was saying how uncomfortable it made her to watch Alina with the judge because... She was not respectful with the judge and that this Judge Kaplan is a very strict judge. Right. As we look at this, it's absolutely typical of the sort of broader sense of Trump world and of MAGA world today. And that world is contemptuous of expertise. Trump needed, as somebody said, some man or woman who has spent a lot of time in court who is mentally strong enough to say, shut up, Donald. Stop doing that, Donald. That's a Tom Nicholsy kind of idea. It is a Tom Nichols type take, but it's it's not wrong. Trump doesn't have anyone like that. He doesn't have anyone. Well, I mean, he has Susie Wiles. Yeah, but Susie's not involved in that part of the operational side. She's just in the campaign. I will say this with all respect, there will become a moment where Trump's ego, remember, there's always a good rule to follow with Trump. The better he does, the worse he is. And if he starts to pick up in the, again in the polls or anywhere else, he will. And, and because think about it, a lot of this shit behavior from him came right after he started winning in Iowa and New Hampshire. Because of that, he got that I'm invincible thing in his head again. He's not invincible. We've seen it now. We've seen Robbie take him to school and end his shenanigans. You know, he does have more legal problems coming down the pike. Like he has 91 criminal counts. Yeah. Well, look, and again, I've said this a hundred times. I mean it. It will not change a single MAGA vote even if he is in prison. But it doesn't matter. All the MAGAs are not enough. What matters to me, what I find very satisfactory in this moment, is that Donald Trump, even if he never spends a day in jail, he's about to have his entire real estate empire ripped away from him because it's built on a foundation of fraud. He is going to lose all of that. That, that stuff's over. And he is going to spend the rest of his life trying to pretend to be a billionaire and hustle around trying to pretend to be a billionaire when he's not. He's got nothing left. And I am here for that. <laughs> so let's talk about some just retail politics that I'm not seeing a lot of discussion of. Filing deadlines were this week for a bunch of uh, races. Arizona looks like Carrie Lake does not have a lot of money. Looks like Kirsten Cinema has even less. I mean, is this just Ruben Gallegos to have? 
right now it's Rubens to have. Now, by saying that, I mean to also say never, ever, ever take anything at all for granted. Especially in Arizona. Especially in Arizona. It's bad juju to take anything like that for granted. Don't do it. But the Lake brand, like a lot of other things, Trumpism doesn't scale as well as people think it does. It almost never does. If someone came in your house and, and acted the way Trump does and said the things Trump says, you'd go, get the fuck out. You're insane. And if someone acted that way in the workplace, they'd be fired. All these things have added up to this sort of delusion on the part of a lot of these people that they can go out and run and pretend that they're Donald Trump. And they're not. Not one of them. Is there anyone who you can think of who has done Trumpism and hasn't underperformed at least? I mean, like I'm thinking of like J.D. JD Vance. Vance. Yeah, but J.D. Vance still ran like about 10 points less than he should have considering it was Ohio. That's true. 10 is as good as one if you're winning. Right. I guess that's true. Or one is as good as 10 if you're winning. But that's like such a red state. Have you seen anyone else like do Trumpism and make it work for them? I'm thinking about it right now. And I don't really have another person who is in a competitive seat or state been able to pull that off. Even in congressional districts that are pretty red, there is a limitation of it. So they say the sort of ritualized things of, I love Donald Trump. He is the savior and the light of my light and my heart. But right. they don't act like Donald Trump. They don't go out and talk about, I'm going to be a dictator on day one. They don't play the Trump character that that he plays in every public interaction. Probably the most MAGA congressman is Matt Gates. Matt Gates is not a product of Matt Gates, right? Matt Gates R plus 32 or whatever the district is. Yeah, Florida's first district. But he's also like Matt Gates is both MAGA, but he's also like the son of a very prominent Florida politician, you know? Yes, a former client. <laughs> Look, and his dad is his dad is worth, you know, three hundred million dollars. So Matt has right. never had a problem in his life. But none of these places or people that would imitate Trump or Trumpism in the real world would survive. It just doesn't work that way. And that's actually that Americans should take that as a sort of upbeat note. Pretty good sign, I think. You know, yeah. and look, it, it, there's always been this this sort of like baseline idea that that America finds its way to back to sort of a political homeostasis at some point. And the idea that Trump and Trumpism is as, as unpalatable to Americans as would be like if you took the squad and put them in a in a moderate Midwestern Democratic district, you know, they wouldn't it wouldn't work. But Trump is so far out into the extreme ether. It makes even sort of like the the most noisy progressives look fairly normal in some ways. I love you. But comparing the squad to Donald Trump is like comparing Mussolini to the Fendi sisters. What I said was that if you put the squad in a in a moderate district in anywhere but but where they exist, they couldn't survive politically. It's true. But it is like the construction is comparing the Fendi sisters to Mussolini. I still love you, though. I love you, too. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Daniela Balu Ares is the CEO of the Leadership Now Project. Welcome to Fast Politics, Daniela. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great to have you. So talk to us about what your organization is called and what it does. Sure. My organization is the Leadership Now Project, and we have since 2017 been organizing and mobilizing business leaders who are concerned with protecting American democracy. And what does that what what does that mean? Like business leaders explain. It means a couple of things in terms of the actual who of who's involved since the start. We have had the thesis that there are plenty of members of the business community. I started the organization with fellow alumni from Harvard Business School who were worried about the state of democracy. And since then, we've expanded across the country. And so we have many are alumni from business schools across the country who are now leading companies and organizations. Many are Gen Xers who haven't really been politically engaged until uh, in a significant way until seeing the really significant threats to democracy after 2016 and have realized that it's in their the country's interest, in their individual interest, and in their business interest to have a functioning system that works. So what does that look like? I mean, what how it's one thing to say you support democracy, but how do you actually support it? Yeah, let me give you a couple of examples. So we have members uh, across the country. They are members in their individual capacity. So if you think of organizations historically or that still exist, like the American Bar Association, American Medical Association, organizations that have individual professionals who have a perspective and a position, our members are coming to this as individuals, but recognizing their interests. And that can happen in a couple of different ways. We have focused on, first, what are systems that can make our democracy function better? So ending gerrymandering, increasing uh, voting access, having transparent campaign finance rules, 
those are all in the in that bucket. So we've done things like just last week, our members in Ohio and worked with other business leaders in the state and issued a letter and statement supporting the objective redistricting ballot initiative that is expected to be on the ballot in November and making the case. We have, so we had 70 leaders from the former CEO of Procter & Gamble to Jenny Britton, the CEO of or the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream, saying, look, right. for the state, having fair districts, having state legislatures who are accountable to their citizens, that's good for our state, that's good for attracting talent, and that's good for our business as a whole. And we've been doing, in Wisconsin, our members uh, last year and the year before asked candidates like Governor Evers and Tim Michaels, who ran for governor in 2022, to commit to certifying future elections regardless of the outcome. A pretty basic question. <laughs> we would hope that every political candidate was willing to commit to that. But when, in that case, the Republican candidate for governor refused to do so, our members were very public and saying, we're Democrats, we're Republicans, but we have to vote for democracy. And in this case, that means voting for Governor Evers. So we're trying to take very specific stances on issues that are very clearly at the core of trust in our system, the functioning of our system, and creating a stable and uh, dynamic democracy that we need for our society to function, for capitalism to function over the long term. So there was some talk early on after Trump led an armed insurrection that corporations weren't going to donate to him. A lot of them have maybe not donated to him, but donated to, you know, they said they weren't going to donate to Republicans who signed to try to overturn the 2020 election. All of that has changed largely. Tell me some good news here, because it feels like in my mind, a lot of corporations have really been quite cowardly and not really stood up for democracy. So give us like a tiny bit of good news here. Yeah. One, I think it is really important not to think about businesses, business leaders as a monolith, right? If you look at, uh, we look at over time, what are the political orientation of MBAs? They're about half-half, Democrat, Republican. If you look at how many say they support democracy, they're pretty moderate on both sides. It's 70 to 80 percent really are worried about it and concerned. And so the coalition for democracy, I think, is very large. And it's in all of our interests to make that as as large as possible. And business people are part of it. I think to the specific point of the business response to the interaction and what has happened around supporting election deniers, I think what immediately happened around the election in 2020, and we were very involved in this, we were one of that we were the first business organization to come out in October of 2020 and say, we have to, you know, this election is legitimate. Our processes are legitimate. We're going to need to be patient with results. And that had everyone from Reed Hoffman to Marissa Mayer to many others who signed on. And through, you know, the election, debates around waiting for GSA certification, the insurrection, we were really in lockstep with many of the other business groups like the Chamber and Business Roundtable and CEOs coming out and saying, okay, this is unacceptable. This election's legitimate. And then obviously coming out against the insurrection. And then stating that they would no longer support election deniers. And you're absolutely right that that commitment has waned. It's not with 100 percent. I mean, about half of those companies have kept commitments. The dollars going from companies to election deniers has reduced, but it has not become a standard, right? Which is ideally you would like to see a more kind of baseline set of expectations for candidates that uh, corporate PACs would support. So I don't have a great excuse for that. I think that that is something that we enc we're encouraging companies to really take a real look at in 2024 as they make their decisions and the risk that that creates. But I do think it's important to recognize that the way companies and business leaders are engaged in the system is not just about you know, 147 members of Congress and the $2,500 checks that a, you know, a, a relatively limited set of companies in the big scheme of things, right? It comes down to, I mean, what we know in this election, right? I mean, we're talking to people on this podcast every day of, about it, is it's going to come down to the conduct and mobilization in six states. You know, I was recently in, in Arizona, 80% of the election administrators have quit. Yeah. There's intimidation all over the place, um, including of the, particularly of the Republican election administrators, right? And business leaders standing up for those election administrators 
helping fill the gap in poll workers, encouraging going out to vote, publicly standing against election deniers in this, their state, which is what our Wisconsin business leaders did. I mean, that's even bolder from my perspective than a company deciding not to write a $2,500 check. Is that happening? Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, as I mentioned, our members in Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Business Leaders for Democracy, when they did this questionnaire to candidates, to the governor, gubernatorial candidates, and said, will you certify future elections? They came out publicly. They endorsed Evers because he was supporting democracy. They shot an ad. It was viewed 10 million times. It was covered all over the press. And it was a clear statement to voters and to many moderate voters that, you know, this was an election that was first and foremost about respect for our institutions. And I think for business, you know, I've been disappointed by the narrative coming out of Davos. Why don't you tell our listeners, for those who are not completely tuned in, what the narrative, the incredibly ridiculous narrative coming out of Davos was. Which I will say I will attribute to a combination of the chatter there. And I think to Davos and I think they're kind of overestimating how much there's a singular narrative. So I think the press has weaved it into like one narrative that everyone in Davos kind of was taking. All of that said, I mean, there were clearly data points that the press had to work with around business leaders, including Jamie Dimon, suggesting at a minimum, they were willing to work with whoever would win and, and it wouldn't really affect the U.S. that much. And maybe even that would be, a, you know, a net positive, right? There might be a tax cut, which is insane, right? But yes, I'll be in Gitmo, so I won't get to see the tax cut. But yes, that's the idea. I'm on the same as you are, Molly. Yeah. So I'll be you. <laughs> it is this idea that corporate, I mean, corporations are not people. They are corporations serving their corporate interest, right? Right. But the people who made comments in Davos are people, right? Those business leaders are making a set of comments that they have, from my perspective, a fair bit of latitude in how they frame this issue. And so I think the the um, the failure in that framing <laughs> is that this election, first and foremost, is about rule of law and institutions and about not what exactly what economic policy decision is going to be made in the first month or year, et cetera. Although I think there are many ways that Trump will be bad for trade, will be bad for many industries. Well, the 60 percent tariff seems like it might be inflationary. This thing, Trump has been mulling privately to advisors a 60 percent tariff on Chinese goods. Yes. I mean, there is all kinds of both bluster and like real policies that could be taken that would be bad economically. But I think this most important argument here is the question is, will you be ever able to, un to influence policy again? Whether you like the next policy or not, are we going to be at the end of real democracy in this country where institutions and policies are debated and fought out and different interests? You know, we might not love exactly which interests have more influence or not, but ultimately even in its imperfection, our system is about rule of law, a set of represent representation of people. And what's at stake here is really the entire system itself. And that not only has real domestic, you know, I think the implication for business, of course, are also things like political retribution. We did an amicus brief. One of the other things we do in addition to, you know, taking positions on ballot initiatives or on expectations of political leaders is amicus briefs on things like the Morby Harper independent state, independent state legislature case, which was a case in 2023 that sought to just give state legislatures free reign over elections, which failed, fortunately, in the Supreme Court. Uh, but we submitted an amicus saying this kind of lack of rule of law and uncertainty would be uh, bad for business. And we also did an amicus brief. Which seems pretty obvious, but a lot of Republicans don't believe that, which is bizarre. Can you, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, the, and you know, this is another place where the framing does not make sense of right. removing constitutional checks and balances in the system, which again are the like core of democracy, right? And protects everyone. I mean, including business. And we did an amicus brief on Disney's case against Governor DeSantis on you know free speech grounds and also you know the lack of constitutionality of political retribution against a, a company for them exercising free speech, as Disney did in the case in Florida on LGBT rights. And that I think 
the scale of behind the scenes political retribution or threats of political retribution and then the public examples like Disney are very significant. I mean, we hear about it all the time and it's it's, it's at the state level. It's threatening a company. If you say anything we don't like, here's the three things we're going to do on your regulation and on the regulatory side to a degree. I mean, you know, you could argue state politics has never exactly been the most (laughs) clean of political systems anywhere, but it has gone up dramatically in the last eight years. And the idea that you can just kind of hide from that or the I, that intervention in your business is something that you know, won't happen or you can just, you know, you can stop using the term ESG and start saying sustainability and then they'll go away. Actually, history tells us that that is not the case. I mean, we work with business leaders from Hungary, from Turkey, from Mexico. They've all seen as democracy, they've experienced as democracy eroded the political leadership is willing to completely go after them, go after them personally, go after their businesses, make it impossible for them to operate. I mean, you see in Hong Kong, the number of business leaders that have been thrown in jail, go back to Nazi Germany, you know, it's, it really is like, unfortunately, very naive. What we know is that business leaders over history are often naive that they can kind of work with the autocrat. <laughs> unfortunately, you know, they, they'll just kind of not take them on and that never ends well at all. Exactly. What can our listeners do to support your organization and also just to support democracy as a whole? Absolutely. And I mean, I think one, just one other comment on Davos and the commentary there and this commentary that business has kind of come to terms with Trump. I really think that is not helpful because business and business leaders, whether it's the Fortune 500 or at a state level across different industries, is just are just not monolithic. Right. And there are of business leaders and plenty of power that we have in this country, whether it's in business or in civil society, who does not want to see the erosion of rule of law. And that's not purely defined by Democrat versus Republican. I mean, and lots of people don't even like to think of themselves first, second, or third as partisan, right? They think of right. themselves as a business person. They think of themselves as a mom. They think of, you know, all of, all of those things that I am. I, you know, I think about, I, and I'm a New Yorker, like all of those identities there's no reason we shouldn't be, you know, thinking about them broadly. And I really do think we have many examples um, in recent years of business people and business leaders taking a position here. And there's no reason we can't do more. And I think one of the, you know, lessons from, I find Tim Snyder's work, the Yale historian, so instructive and his on irony, you know, his 20 steps of how to kind of resist autocracy. The first one is don't obey in advance. If there's bluster around, you know, oh, we're scared that Donald tweet, Donald Trump might tweet against us or there might be, you know, threats of retaliatory regulation, et cetera. What autocrats depend on is you taking action before they even do anything. I think that kind of reminder to everyone, like, you know, don't change the way you're operating in your business or in life just because you're fear, fear of what might happen later, because that increases the chance that it happens later. <laughs> And I think the other thing is, which is relevant to business or to um, engaging any civic group, right, is that like small actions and small groups of people do have a lot of power. So even, you know, what we've seen, if even a dozen executives in the city come together and say, how are we going to protect, be part of protecting election administrators in this state? What are we going to do publicly? How do we work with other civic groups? How do we make it unacceptable for threats for election administrators? That can have a lot of power. You don't need to have like you know, all the leaders in your state or city involved, you can you can move, which I think is going to be so important in, in the next nine months. And then, I, you know, I think a basic thing that any leader of an organization can do also is give time out for voting, you know, make sure I'm, that everyone's aware of all of the ways to engage. We have such a desperate need for poll workers, for instance, because so many are quitting. So I think just supporting that engagement, et cetera. I'll say one last thing on the point of what can people do. Molly, I see that we both grew up in New York. I was in Brooklyn mostly before Brooklyn was <laughs> cool, maybe a gritty cool. I was reflecting on how the former president was so present in the press in around the time that you and I were both young and you would have lots of Donalds in, in Ivana press and publicity and how that seemed kind of farcical at the time and how it seems anything but that now. But I do think New Yorkers... I feel an extra obligation to be part of addressing these threats to democracy since it's kind of a home. We created him. Yes. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Daniela. That was great. Great to connect. Arellis Hernandez is a correspondent for The Washington Post. Welcome to Fast Politics, Arellis. Happy to be here. Thank you. You wrote this incredible piece on the border. I'm so conflicted because I want to cover the border because there's a humanitarian crisis going on there. But it feels to me that the way it's being covered as a, as a political crisis, when in fact it's really a humanitarian crisis, what is it like? So right now, actually, crossings have plummeted. I'm actually in Eagle Pass right now. And, you know, there's some activity on the river, but right now they're sort of in a stasis. I can describe to you Shelby Park, for example. This is Riverfront Park here in Eagle Pass. It has quite a bit of sort of military personnel there. There's razor wire shipping containers, and they're continuing to sort of place more and more stuff as a barrier, as a deterrent to migrants. And so what We have been hearing from local officials and particularly law enforcement and fire rescue folks here in Eagle Pass is that because migrants are seeing that this path that was once available to them to cross the river is no longer available, they're going upriver and downriver, where in some cases the water is more swift, it's deeper, and it's a bit more dangerous to cross. One of the things you wrote about in this piece was you talked about how, you know, there are soldiers there. There's a whole sort of security industrial complex booming in the town of Eagle Pass, right? Yes. I mean, on normal days, right, when you don't have the state of Texas and the National Guard occupying a city, you know, municipal park, there is tons of federal law enforcement and border patrol that are here regularly patrolling. Uh, The reason that we think that crossings have dropped off in the new year has to do in part with some of the work that's happening in Mexico with our diplomats and some of our congressional leaders negotiating with Mexico to have the national police over there be also more aggressive in stopping groups from reaching northern Mexico. In this case, this is Coahuila State, Piedras Negras, which is the sister city to Eagle Pass. And they've been more successful in, for example, taking migrants off buses, stopping them from boarding flights to the border, intercepting caravans and and sending them back south to Tapachula or to the Guatemala-Mexico border. And so, you know, the U.S. has been in this holding pattern of sorts where the numbers sort of fluctuate in part depending on how much interest Mexico has in stopping those groups from even reaching the border. Right. I want you to talk about, because one of the things I was so moved with your piece was about how this is really a dangerous crossing. I mean, people die doing this. All the time. In fact, I was with a sheriff's deputy yesterday and we were talking through his job for a long time was just to respond to the remains of migrants dubbed floaters, because if you drown in the river, it takes a couple of days for your body to inflate and and float up to the surface of, of the river. He handled 225 bodies in 2022 alone. There are different groups that have different numbers, the medical examiner's officer, uh, the, the justice of the peace, border patrol has different numbers. But we're talking about hundreds of people, men, women and children. And in some cases, women who are pregnant, you know, good and distressed in the river and then give birth to stillborn children uh, on the U.S. side. It's it's a massive tragedy. So one of the things you you write about in this piece is The town of Eagle Pass, the people around there have a lot of mixed feelings about immigration and these people coming over the border. Yeah. So um, Eagle Pass is uh, technically part of Tony Gonzalez's, a Republican, his district. This is a place where people are mostly voting Democrat, but are very conservative or at least extremely moderate. And they're facing this in, in different ways. For example, if you're a local firefighter, you're experiencing the trauma of having to respond to migrant rescues all the time. If you're someone who needs to go to the hospital in Eagle Pass, you're having to wait some time because a migrant might be occupying that bed that you need. If you're, you know, a sheriff's deputy who's experienced it, like there are different layers to this. So people, I think, are for the most part, are largely sympathetic to the fact that people are making this choice to journey northward and to seek asylum, but are angry about the resources. And more than anything, I think the sort of inaction of both the state and the federal government in providing actual solutions to the problem. 
Right. And that's, I think, a really important point here, because Biden had asked for all this border money and Republicans had said no. And then there was a border bill, which nobody's seen, but is probably not going to make anyone happy. Until you have legislation, Biden can't really executive order his way out of this as much as Republicans pretend to want him to. So like these people who live in this community are, they feel that they're not, I mean, they they don't just feel it. It's really true that they're not able, like the part of, in the piece you wrote about how like, you know, people who have a heart attack can't get an ambulance because they're trying to save someone who's drowning in the river. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, they're they're literally in the middle in every single way and dimension of this particular humanitarian issue. And, you know, folks are trying to sort of figure out a way that they can be a part of the conversation, whether at the state or the federal level. I mean, if you ask regular folks in Eagle Pass, they won't blame the governor for stepping in the way he has. They don't think it's effective or will solve the problem. But they sympathize with that frustration that like, here you have thousands of people every day, like at some point it was like 5,000 people every day crossing the river into your community. And while, you know, in sort of direct everyday ways, you're you're not interacting or having encounters with migrants, depending on where you live, if in the rural or in the city, but you are feeling sort of like the residual effects of all of that. Right, exactly. And it's complicated because a lot of these people are new, new immigrants, right? And I mean, you've got all kinds of different sort of family dynamics in the borderlands. In some cases, there are folks who've been here since, you know, Spanish were here in this region and this was still Mexico. And then you have people who, yeah, who are one or two generations removed from having migrated themselves or their families are still on the other side in Piedras Negras who are in mixed status families. So again, like they understand and they sympathize. There is a little bit of sort of quiet resentment, particularly among Mexicans who migrated to the United States, work in Eagle Pass and are trying to bring their families across because right. there's a perception Legally. that, right, they've, they've spent money, they spent years trying to bring their wife or their child across the Eagle Pass. And here are thousands of people seemingly getting a free pass and access to resources to be able to move about the country. Um, there is some resentment that exists, but it's it's more a resentment, I think, and right, my perception is with the government sort of not being able to manage this in a way that makes sense. Right. What happens to people when they come over? How does it go? So there is no straight script for what happens to a person when they cross the river, step on U.S. soil, maybe ask for asylum or come in relief and go into Border Patrol custody. There are a couple of things that can happen. It all depends on what country you come from, who you are, like male or female, child or coming as a family and how you crossed. And so, for example, for those Venezuelan migrants, that couple that I met, the 25 and 21 year old, they were clearly asking for protection at asylum for political persecution in Venezuela. In that case, like had this been sort of a normal Border Patrol interaction, those folks would have been taken into custody. If they asked for asylum verbally, they would have had a conversation with an asylum officer and screened for credible fear and then would have moved on the process. It, depending on sort of the discretion of the various officers involved in that process, they could have been released on parole into the United States, placed in detention, possibly even deported because we do we are doing deportation flights to Venezuela. And it's no secret to anyone here that, of you know, the thousands of people who has who have asked for asylum and entered that process, a large number of them, as the law is written now, probably won't qualify for asylum in this country. I feel like the politics of this have gotten so removed from the actual experience of people. Can you talk a little bit about what these people have done by the time they got into Eagle Pass, like what their trip looks like? Yes, I can give you sort of what the stereotypical, and again, it really varies from migrant to migrant depending on their nationality and their economic resources, frankly. But in recent years, a lot of migration has been coming from South America, particularly Venezuela, uh, in some cases, Cuba and Nicaragua. And these are all places that we don't have diplomatic relations with and that are you know, run by socialists or governments or autocracies, right? And these folks do, in some cases, cross the Darien jungle, which is links uh, Colombia to Panama to get onto the isthmus and the continent. They're crossing eight or nine national borders along the way. They're facing all kinds of dangerous situations, extortion, right? you know, vulnerability to criminal organizations. 
in some cases, they are getting help. Like they've had relatives who've made that journey and are, you know, have basically mapped it out for them, told them which buses to take or jumping on top of trains. It's such a constellation of experiences that you can have, but all of it, uh, none of it is it's easy. There are people coming from places also that you would not expect, right? Can you talk about that? Yes. I've talked to particularly folks who run NGOs in this sector of the border that have seen folks from Vietnam, from Senegal, from Mauritius, from Syria, in some cases, Russians. You know, people have gotten the message and, you know, cartels and criminal organizations have willingly spread that message that if you are seeking this kind of protection or you just want to make the trip to the USA, this is the way to go. This is a people problem more than it is a stuff problem, right? I think so. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying like the fentanyl is not flowing over this border, right? These people don't have anything with them is what I'm trying to get to. Oh, yeah. This is this is a human smuggling, human exploitation and human migration situation. Yeah, that there's folks that who are bringing drugs, absolutely. But they're, for the most part, they're not amongst the surrenderers, right? The large majority of people that you see in images. And the people who are bringing drugs are probably coming through ports of entry. Yes, and in vehicles and people who work for organizations who know how to do this work, yes. Right. So if you were a good faith actor, which I'm not sure Republicans are, you are seeing firsthand what the issues are. In your mind, I know this is like kind of unfair because you're a straight journalist, but like what are your sense of how if you were the president, you would solve this problem? I'm sorry to ask you this question, but I'm just curious if you have solves that you've seen because you're there. I'm going to sort of relay what folks who live here has been trying to advance for a long time. Uh, there are a bunch of influential business people and political leaders out here who have advanced some of these solutions and gotten nowhere in the conversation in Congress. So we're talking about specifically aligning migration to labor needs in the United States. We're talking about creating many Ellis Islands where you have civilian people who are in charge of specifically processing folks at the border seeing asylum and making a very clear pathway for them to be able to do that so they don't have to cross the river, that there's like a special line for them at the bridge and that there's a processing center for them to be able to do that and to increase the number of immigration judges and asylum officers that are you know, reviewing these cases so you don't have these backlog backlogs and rating, waiting two to three years. I mean, it, the availability of legal pathways has diminished uh, over the decades for folks. And, you know, asylum seemed to be that pathway. Asylum law does need to change, probably. At least that's what borderlanders are saying, because, again, the, the realities don't match what the experiences that people are bringing. And spinning that forward into sort of a question of demographic labor and economics, the United States is aging quite rapidly and baby boomers are coming out of the workforce, in which case you're going to need people to fill those jobs. You're going to need people to fill those industries. So I, I think there are practical solutions that, again, borderlanders advance. And if you want there is a common sense playbook that the International Bank of Commerce that just situated in the borderlands, Dennis Nixon is the president. He has tried to push this forever uh, and, again, has not made any traction. Yeah. So you're basically saying that a better funded federal government would be able to handle this crisis. And in fact, it may have been created by a Republican Party that wants the federal government to fail. You don't have to agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's some debate just... in that space uh, about that. But but yes, I mean, it seems like the government, if it had enough money to address this problem, could solve it or at least make it better. I think there is some sense of that. Maybe it isn't a question of more money, but more targeted and efficient use of that money towards the kinds of common sense solution bringing ideas that borderlanders, again, have advanced for years. Yeah. Now that these numbers are down a little bit, do you think that why the numbers are down are because Mexico is sort of doing more Remain in Mexico stuff? Remain in Mexico is a totally different sort of paradigm. But in terms of okay. they're doing more enforcement, they are keeping migrants from getting to the river or the desert line. So like, you know, they're not in some cases not issuing tickets to ride buses that would be headed north or they're pulling off them off of trains, those kind of enforcement actions. So that is why 
it's happening. It's part of the reason. Yes. Right. Do you think that if there were really a clear path to citizenship, that that would slow these illegal crossings? That's a great question. Part of the issue is that you're combating a criminal, international criminal organizations that are incredibly sophisticated and have been known to adapt very quickly to whatever the policy changes of the border are. And they'll figure out how to make money. But I think if you make it safer, if you make it clearer, if there are clear expectations for what happens when I enter this process, then, you know, you could potentially create a scenario where people bypass those criminal organizations altogether. Now, that's also, you know, idealistic and futuristic, and I don't know what's actually going to happen. But that's okay. We need to be idealistic, especially when it comes to we have this tight labor market. We have this, you know, we are not keeping up growing our population. This is my opinion now, and I'm on the opinion space, so I can say this. These are people we need in this country. It's just a question of how to be able to get them. Yeah. And to be clear, like, I mean, they're not thinking that all of these folks are exactly what the United States needs. I think there is very much from business leaders, at least, this sense that we should match the skills that some of these folks, if they have, you know, special skills to the labor needs in the United States. And so like the idea of a guest worker program, for example, is something that is still pretty popular amongst, I think, a lot of different sectors of folks who live here uh, on the border. Thank you so much, Aurelis, for taking the time with us. It's my pleasure. Happy to shed light on some of this stuff. And now your moment of fuckery. <laughs> so, so let me ask you, do you have a moment of fuckery, Rick Wilson? My moment of fuckery is every one of these assholes in MAGA universe who are still shit talking and down talking the American economy, because at this point, they can't deny that Joe Biden's economy is so good and so strong and growing stronger by the day. We've got record wage growth for the first time in 55 years. We've got record job growth. We've got record energy production. Prices are coming down faster than they went up. We've got gas prices under three bucks a gallon everywhere in the country except California now. We've got an amazing economy. And these people that continue, like on Fox, they're like, some say they'll wait to see if these numbers are adjusted later. walking past that graveyard is not working out as well as y'all think so i mean that was an incredible yeah wasn't it so that's my moment of fuckery is all these people down talking the american economy right now when by god you know at some point just some basic reality check on these people i know how much it irritates them but here we are It is so insane to me that, you know, look, it's exactly what Trump said. He wants the economy to crater. He wants there to be a recession. He doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover. Right. Remember that? Uh Yeah. He knows what's going on. Well, he sort of knows what's going on. Well, no, but but he does see that there's a very difficult case to be made to pretend that the economy is somehow this dark and perilous place now. Right. It's really hard to do that now. And so he's going to prevent legislation for the border in the hopes that that will provide him enough to make a theory Mm -hmm. of the case that that will give him something to run on. Because right now the economy is good. Inflation is going down. There are so many sort of wins in this Biden economy Politico had a piece this morning, which I am going to just read you a tiny bit of because it's such an incredible little thing that I completely missed. It's called 30 Things That Joe Biden Did as President, which you might have missed. And they include expanding overtime guarantees for millions. First, over-the-counter birth control pill to hit U.S. stores in 2024, which means that people who can't afford doctors, which is a large percentage of American women, uh, yeah, sadly. Yeah, can get birth control. Gun violence prevention and gun safety get a boost. I know that's something near and dear to your heart. Renewable power is the number two source of electricity in the United States and climbing. Did you know that? I did not know that. I did know that. Preventing discriminatory mortgage lending. He did that. A sweeping crackdown on junk fees and overdraft charges, forcing Chinese companies to open their books. 
I mean, preventing another January 6th. I mean, my man building armies of drones to counter China that I have mixed feelings about the drones. Nations farms get big bucks to go climate smart. I mean, Biden scraps Trump's paint scheme for Air Force One. Here's the thing. The economy that Donald Trump fantasizes about in his head is Joe Biden's economy. The economy Donald Trump pretended he was delivering for America is actually the economy Joe Biden has built. And all the Trump stuff was always a Potemkin village. It was always a sort of illusion to make his own himself happy. It was always sort of like, you know, MAGA porn. And Biden's delivered. So people that criticize that, they are in my moment of the fuckery. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Good night. Good day. And all that. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.